0: Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. I memorized that latter half of that quote when I was a young man, And I bet many of you did as well if you grew up in the church. It has been a mainstay of my life, and scripture memory is a huge spiritual discipline that can be so helpful. If you don't do any scripture memory, I really heartily encourage you to do so. And I'd be glad to talk with you about it. I'm starting at the end of the epistle lesson, of course, but I want us to remember what St. Paul was aiming at. The example that St. Paul gives in the preceding verses, 6 through 12, does not have to be us. He tells us that the Israelites are an example for the New Testament Christians, an example of what not to do. Yet he wanted his readers to know that they too, excuse me, and us can fall into sin oh so easily. He also wanted his readers to know that the answer to sin is with us. God is with us. The Messiah is with us by the presence of the Holy Ghost in our lives. God is always faithful and has provided the way out of a life of sin. In fact, temptation itself can be escaped by the power of God. Indeed, temptation is very often the hardship that St. James is talking about when he says the trials and tribulations are to be met with joy. Consider it joy when you encounter various trials and tribulations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So in one way of looking at it, and there are more than one way, but you can see your life of temptation is a life of trial. I mean, after all, we're rather susceptible to temptation. That's the whole context of the word temptation, right? And so those are a series of trials. Temptation itself can be escaped by the power of God. But as powerful as that reality is, they don't seem in our culture, to have much effect. In fact, I think for Christians, quite often, we seem to lose the power of the promises of God. We need the first part of the lesson to remind us of the power of those last words of our epistle. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. The real power of those words at the end of our epistle is the reality of the world that God has made. And that reality is not well understood by a civilization that is owned and lives the life of the Enlightenment. That reality is, however, stated at the beginning of our lesson. A switch has to be thrown in our minds. For many of you that have spent some time moving into the traditional Catholic faith, you understand what I'm saying. For those of you that might be new to the Catholic worldview, if you will, um, you will understand that there's a paradigm shift and that switch, that breaker, has to be thrown. We have to own the reality that God created, not the reality that the Western mind created in our minds about 500 years ago. Yes, the seeds of the Enlightenment were sown in the latter stages of the medieval period, but it sure gathered quite a bit of steam and has seeped to the very edges of the culture in the West by now, some 500 years later. And I would argue has seeped into the very foundations of the Western church, including most of the Catholic um, traditional churches. How many sacraments are there in the world that God has created? The argument seems to be between two and seven since the 1500s. That argument misses the whole point. The answer that better captures the world that God created and not the one that we've made up is How many sacraments are there? Who knows? Maybe thousands upon thousands. Yes, I understand that there are two that the Lord himself instituted and gave the way to practice them. And that there are five more that the church has used and understood from as far back as we can see in the history of the church. But the very world that God created is a sacrament, if you will. It is a sacramental world that should be viewed that way. God uses physical matter, the world itself, to communicate his truth and his grace to us. If we don't think about God and ourselves and the world around us in this manner, we are not thinking biblically. Now, I know that there are many churches out there who shout and scream about thinking biblically, but they don't think in this manner. Much of the church, including ours and, and the temptation for all of us, maybe those of you that have been here longest even, the temptation is to be Gnostic. That means to treat physical matter as, at best, unimportant. More traditionally, in Gnosticism, it sees matter as evil. I grew up thinking that my entire spiritual life was happening in here, maybe in here. There's some other traditions that are pretty sure it all happens in here. But the world that God gave us, the biblical understanding of that world, is a world that is sacramental. That you see God working through every aspect of his creation. Yes, it is difficult to fight against this modernistic, Gnostic, and mechanistic world that we live in. The material and the consumer world that the Enlightenment has given us. But we we must work at it day after day after day. For Jesus did not come as a spirit only, did he? As the Gnostics would say. He came as a man. He came looking a lot like you and I looked when we were infants. I don't know if you were beautiful or not. And I don't know if Jesus was or not. But he was helpless. I don't know what diapers looked like back then, but he soiled them. He was a man just like all of us. Jesus is the most obvious example of a sacrament that we can imagine. He is the embodiment embodiment of the grace of God himself. He is the communication of truth and grace to us in physical form. We need to flip the switch in our minds. We need to constantly readjust our paradigm to see the world as God created it and not the way our culture sees it. My friends, this is so hard to do when we are constantly bombarded by the world around us. The world that sees the culture, excuse me, sees the whole world, the physical world and everything so differently than the Bible does, than the church has. Now I would say actually, for those of you old enough, to see the last 20 to 30 years being this huge culture shift, think about that, old people. I mean, we look back and we go, holy moly, the world I grew up in doesn't exist anymore. I and mean, that huge of a shift, the world I'm talking about that the Bible sees and the world that is presently seen is a shift like this. It's multiple times greater than the shift we've seen in the last 30 years. It also took a good 200 to 500 years to kind of get itself moving. So we need to flip the switch in our minds and constantly readjust our paradigm to see the world as God created it and not the, the way our world sees it, our culture sees it. And it is not just a mental exercise, it is a practical exercise. Next to the, to the dominical sacraments themselves, means of grace through physical matter, Bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus. Water becomes the washing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Next to those two things, prayer is the means of communication with the divine. The church has always prayed every day, morning and evening. It's an actual physical time. Time is part of the creation. And it's a giving of the morning and the evening to God. It may only be long enough to say the Lord's Prayer. But that's a beginning. And the building out of the office from there in your life can can go apace. Slowly or quickly. I'm not always that concerned with the speed of moving. Just so long as we're moving in the right direction, right? So the church has always prayed in time. The daily office is the worship of God and the prayer to God of time where what we're about today is the worship of God that escapes time for we ascend into the heavenlies and leave the world behind in a spiritual manner and join God and all his saints around his throne. But every day the church has prayed, very physical too. I mean, historically the church prays on her knees or on her face or standing. Not sitting, by the way. Chews are a rather new invention. It's for, I think it's for us lazy Westerners. The little hours of prayer um, that the monastics took up, and we, we um, modernists like to think of, well, you know, Cranmer took all those hours of prayer and condensed it into two so that that could be normal. And then most of us don't manage to pray that every day. Um, only, the, only the monks could manage to pray all the hours of the day um, actually, the little hours come into play in Jerusalem in the major churches in Jerusalem before the beginning of monasticism, Western monast- uh, excuse me, the Eastern Desert Fathers and then Western monasticism. It comes into play like early third century. And we have records of the little hours being celebrated in the churches. Now, mind you, um, we're probably not going to start that soon here because one priest can only do so much. But as the churches grew and as your big metropolitan churches grew, then they were offering more and more services of prayer throughout the day. And they had staffs of priests and deacons who could lead these. Our abiding in Christ is about communicating with the Holy Trinity on a daily basis. And then moving into what St. Paul calls prayer without ceasing. That takes practice. But that's where we're pointed. That's where the scripture points us. That's where the church points us. To habitual prayer. Until it becomes so habitual that we're always praying. Think what the church and our culture could accomplish if she just followed the biblical and historical practice of daily prayer. Yes, the church's outward actions should follow the life of prayer. But we're not going to make much of a dent with our actions, if we don't ground them in prayer. Yes, we really do have the power of God in us. It's really true. But that is more than just words. It's meant to be worked out in prayer and in sacraments and an understanding that God works in just this way. His world has always worked in just this way. The Israelites had their sacraments too. The spiritual drink they drink was given by Christ himself. Yet they said no thank you to God. And that's the warning today. May we take the opposite track. May we say yes to God. Yes to living in a spiritual life built built upon the church's listed sacraments and the church's life of prayer. May we understand this view of the world so that we are mindful of the physical realities of our lives being connected to our souls and the spiritual realities that God has gifted to us just in the creation around us. This is the world we actually inhabit no matter what the enlightenment has done to our culture. These realities are who we are, body and soul. No... In your mind and heart, that we really do have an escape from sin, but know it and live it in the reality of a sacramental worldview that is built upon the revelation of God in word and in the mysteries of holy baptism and holy communion. Come to the table, my friends, and partake of God's grace. Jesus is using bread and wine again today to make himself known to us and to strengthen and build us up for the work of the kingdom. Amen.